I'm Naira Antoon, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, and you're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. Today, I'm talking with Karma Chavez and Maya McDashi. This podcast is part of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, where we brought together topic experts, activists, and scholars from the Middle East, Europe, and North America to see what we could learn when we break down area-based silos. Today's conversation comes out of the Gender and Sexuality Working Group. Uh, Karma Chavez is Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And Maya McDashi is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and a lecturer in the Program in Middle East Studies at Rutgers University. Thank you both for joining today. So we're we're going to talk today about um, different kinds of uh, exceptionalism. Um, Maya, I'll start. I'll start with you. So you work in both, um, as we've just heard, gender and sexuality field and Middle East studies, both of which we could think of as sort of exceptionalized in some ways. So maybe you could start us off by telling us about how the Middle East, um, you know, as a discipline, as area studies. Um, makes the Middle East an exception or, or has done? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, thanks for inviting us to have this conversation. Um, looking forward to it. It's always a pleasure uh, to think with Karma. Uh, so I would, I guess, start by thinking about exceptionalism as it relates uh, to the Middle East and to Middle East studies. In some ways, it's a sort of Area studies more generally is is seen as exceptional and is exceptionalized uh, within the academy and and specifically and here uh, you know I'm thinking with Edward Said about them how the Middle East itself is treated and constructed as uh, this place you know without history uh, this place that is hyper particular and is transhistorical. And where, uh, you know, it's seen as really, or it's constructed as exceptional to uh, more global formations of uh, just more global formations. So once, you know, these, these kinds of moves are actually very active, so they're not, they don't only... Uh, work to exceptionalize, let's say, an area of study... Or, or a people, but they also uh, actively produce a world in which there are uh, different forms of exceptionalism that circulate, different forms of exceptionalism that circulate as universal. Uh, and here, I think we can think about, uh, we can we should think about these things together. What do you mean by produce, Maya? What I mean is, uh, so these kinds of frames don't just uh, represent an area in a particular way. It actually actively produces how we understand uh, the, the world, how we understand uh, power as it moves through the world, how we understand history, and importantly, how we understand, uh, you know, how global processes are connected, is what I would say. Right. And the Middle East has, you know, in the popular imagination, I mean, it's not homogenous, but, you know, has been constructed as, um, you know, pathologically authoritarian or different forms of, of, of backward and so on. Um, you're both um, based in the, in the U.S. And uh, 
the U.S. is also conceived of um, as exceptional in a in a different way, right? Like uh, almost opposite to the particular um, as this kind of universal exception. I'm not sure, Karma, maybe you can say something about that. Sure. And first of all, you know, thanks a lot for having us. It's been a really exciting process to participate in this throughout the year and especially to have the chance to dialogue with Maya. Um, you know, the idea of U.S. exceptionalism, of course, is uh, both on the one hand a kind of particularizing gesture, whereas the U.S. is a very particular special thing and it allows us to do, you know, basically anything we want to do as a country. But on the other hand, um, it is a universalizing gesture, as you signal there, which is to say um, it becomes the unstated norm. It becomes, um, you know, that which everything else should be measured by in a way. Um, and it's a, it's a very powerful idea. And in, you know, the U.S. context, I think very much doesn't uh, often get deployed in a way as if to understand uh, the the kind of power and the imperialism and the empire building that 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 enables that to, that concept to exist. Yeah, I think the interplay is also um, you know you can think about the Middle East and the way it's constructed as kind of a place that's burdened by history, imprisoned by history. Uh, where those histories actually become epistemological barriers. So they cannot speak, you know, a language of the world or they cannot tell us something about the world because they're oversaturated with uh, history. And the United States is really also, you know, in, in thinking with karma here, constructed as having transcended history in some ways. Right. And I think there there's a real uh, and, and once you've transcended history, right, epistemologically, you travel, you're not a geographic location in some ways, you know. So uh, I think that is really key here to how we think about them together. And obviously, uh, this has to do with power. It has to do with power, empire, and uh, even sort of, you know, histories of messianic settler colonialism in America, in the United States. I mean, every now and then we see these... Um uh, sort of spoof articles going around, right? Where like some an event in the in the US or, or Europe is, is described using the, the tropes that are used to describe uh, the Middle East or other places in the global south. And um, they really sort of bring this into stark relief where, um, especially in the way that history is deployed, right? So suddenly you have uh, age-old conflicts uh, suddenly being described and we, we never see that in uh, in relation to the U.S. Um, usually. So on that note, uh, Lebanon is, of course, you know, constructed as this place um, or understood as this place that's so riven by these uh, deeply embedded, um, I don't know, you know, the sectarian, uh, defined by its sectarianism. And I know you have a book coming out uh, on this or um or is out. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Lebanon as the exception, uh, Maya. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting actually to think about war here and exceptionalism uh, and violence. You know, uh, you know, my favorite sentence that opens, you know, is from time immemorial. My favorite opening sentence, right? From time immemorial, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here, I even here, you know, you can think about Lebanon and the United States together, 
where Lebanon is seen and is exceptionalized as this place of war, violence, the potential for war. Uh, and, you know, the United States has been at war somehow since its founding, right? But that's, but the United States is not seen and exceptionalized as this war filled place that is driven by these sort of primordial, uh, and cultural understandings and practices of violence. Uh, whereas if you actually measure up, you know, like what area, what place have been war filled, actually we can see a world. We don't see location. We see a world, uh, a world of war. I mean, you can even see that today with sort of the coverage of Ukraine in some ways. Uh, and, and part of the ways that people try to make sense of this distinction between how they're covering, I'm talking here about journalists, how they're covering uh, Ukraine versus how they cover other parts of the world, specifically the Middle East, is they say things like, uh, you know, we're not used to war here, right? Like people in the Middle East, they're just always at war. So there's this, you know, we're kind of used to it. Now we're numbed by it. When in actuality, uh, you know, first of all, these wars are global wars. Uh, anyone who has lived through a war knows that you never get used to this kind. I mean, you learn to live with it. But uh, And then the third thing is that a lot of this logic has to do with the displacement of war or the even like creating or intervening and creating a geography of war. So European countries actually have been at war, many, many wars since World War II. They just haven't been fought necessarily in Europe with the, you know, they've been kind of displaced outside uh, and the same for the United States. So it's kind of a question of uh, the particularity of where global wars are fought and then are sort of wrapped in a cultural exceptionalizing discourse and the, the ability to fight wars on other people in other people's or in other geographies that then sets you up, sets you up as somehow tra having transcended these forms of primordial violence. Uh, and I think in Lebanon specifically, even when it comes to Middle East, it's treated as uh, to Middle East studies, it's treated as kind of exceptional. Uh, I think it's treated as exceptional because it's seen as this like very uh, you know complicated place. Uh, with so many different laws and political identities and uh, uh, kind of different, kind, uh, you know, a lot of difference, basically. Religious difference, sectarian difference, cultural difference, uh, class difference, on and on and on. And all these particularisms add up and they really kind of form an epistemological border where Lebanon uh, is seen as only being able to really teach us about itself it doesn't travel beyond the borders. Uh, and what I'm trying to say uh, in sectarianism, in part, is that actually uh, we can think of Lebanon as a kind of exemplary location to think about questions of uh, sexual difference, political difference, secularism, citizenships, precisely because it is a location uh, that has gone through multiple different historical formations. What you're arguing, Maya, it sounds like, is um, by exceptionalizing, we, we've set up 
certain geographies as geographies where war is a normal thing to happen and other places that are geographies of peace. And I think that we can see that very clearly in the uh, coverage of the uh, of the Russian attack of uh, Ukraine. Um, and, you know, and at times it's been made ex- explicit, as you say, you know, like it's shocking. This is what we would imagine seeing in the cities of Baghdad. And I think we even saw that during the Black Lives Matter uh, or movement of Black Lives mobilizations in the in the US, uh, is that right? This sort of element of surprise to be seeing this type of destruction on that we imagine that we should see in the cities of the, of the Middle East. Well, I think the, the question of the movement for black lives is interesting here, because even if you think of anti-blackness and, and histories and presence of racism in the United States, uh, you know, these kinds of actually social movements directly against state violence, police violence, uh, and securitization of uh, Black people in the United States is actually uh, a very, it it is a historical thread, right? But the way it's produced is this kind of multiple events that never add up to a narrative, never add up to an archive of the United States. Whereas here, and, and it takes a lot of work to do that, a lot of ideological work, a lot of uh, epistemological work, and a lot of, I would say also, uh, like global economic political uh, power. Whereas in other locations such as Lebanon, it's almost as if uh, you're doomed by these events, right? Or these events become actually a a sort of archival prism, prism from which you're just solely understood. Almost as if an event happens in anticipation of a narrative, right? So any kind of violence that happens will be sectarian violence. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Just to jump in briefly on that. I mean, I think that the the thing about the United States and the way that the U.S. government is set up from the relationship to sort of the federal government, to the state government, and what that means about... Um, how we get to understand history. And what I mean by that is I'm just thinking about, uh, let alone being able to put the U.S. in a kind of um, global narrative of empire building, of colonialism, et cetera. Um, We can't even uh, state by state make a determination about how to teach U.S. racial history. And in fact, you know, state legislatures around the country are attacking the very possibility, not just of teaching at K through 12, but of teaching at the university level as well. Um, and so, you know, the, the U.S. actively works to ensure that there is no narrative of itself in that way, that um, everything is almost as if uh, ha- it happens, you know, out of nowhere, uh, regardless of kind of these deeper logics that found the U.S. Well, we'll be we'll be right back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, we focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. Please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts.
Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I'm speaking with Karma Chavez and Maya McDashi. Um, yeah, we're talking today about uh, exceptionalism, and you both work in the field of gender and, and sexuality studies. Um, and I wonder, uh, maybe Karma, you can start us off thinking about how uh, queer sexualities are uh, exceptionalized um, from the norm of, of straight sexualities and how we think about them. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime we have this conversation, I think we have to turn to the work of Jasbira Puar and uh, thinking about uh, her concept of, of homonationalism, which I think is the idea of normally we imagine in the United States context, for example, queer sexuality as as a very negative thing, as something that's actually opposed to the nation. Um, but Poir says that in particular with the, the war on terror and the ways in which Muslim sexuality, Muslim male sexuality in particular, um, it is figured as queer in kind of a deviant, problematic, not necessarily homosexual way, but those other kinds of connotations. And with that being the target in the war on terror, all of a sudden, gay sexuality in the United States um, becomes incorporated into the nation in a certain way uh, as, in fact, evidence that we are not so problematic because we're not, one, messed up in the way that these Muslim men are, but also in the way they treat their women, they treat their homosexuals, right? And so the queer becomes a part of the nation in what Poir calls homonationalism. And so I think we've seen then in the last 20 years uh, a shift in the ways that in the West, um, gay sexuality, queer sexuality as in homosexual um, actually relates to the nation um, that people might have thought is unpredictable if you had suggested that this would be the case, say, in the 1980s. I mean, to go back to this broader question of exceptionalism is that when we exceptionalize certain parts of the world as being particularly here uh, homophobic, um, and therefore the flip side, other parts of the world as non-homophobic, we actually can't really understand homophobia also. So we don't really understand these shared global problems. I mean, it, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely one way to put it, right? So you might imagine in the United States in, in 2001, as the, the war on terror is kicking off, um, that if gay and lesbian identity at particular kind of gay and lesbian identity are going to be sort of part of what brands the nation as inclusive, as exceptional, as progressive, um, that, you know, gays and lesbians here would have it pretty good and maybe wealthy white ones do. But of course, for people of color, black and indigenous folks in particular in the United States, um, that's not the case. Uh, and so I, I do think that it absolutely obscures what what homophobia actually is, and it attempts to flatten it to one axis of power. Because it sounded like another thing that you were saying, uh, Karma, is if, from Poir's work, that if the the terrorist um, is understood as a, a queer figure in, in some ways, it sounds like you're advocating that we think of queerness quite broadly, quite expansively. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, Part of what becomes useful about queerness as it gets 
taken out of a kind of dominant white male U.S. context and you get queer of color critique, you start to get queer transnationalism, you get, you know, the kind of critique of the queer international, um, all these ways in which queer becomes pliable. And so it cannot just be reduced to a synonym for same-sex sexuality um, because the historical legacy of the term actually, I think, give it that um, that ability uh, to be used to explain a lot of things that something like gay or lesbian may not be able to explain. And of course, queerness is, is multiple. So you also have a book that's just come out, uh, Karma, right? Where uh, around the AIDS pandemic, so as we're living through a, a different pandemic, and there is a story that's told um, that when we're talking an American story about AIDS, so here we're not really talking about Africa, but it is a story that seems very attentive to queerness and its protagonists are uh, primarily white uh, queer men, but your work takes a different angle. Yeah, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is is not to discount, of course, that um, white gay men in the United States weren't integral to significant activism or suffered you know, great harm, but to suggest that um, citizenship status, your immigration status, uh, actually were as integral um, to the AIDS pandemic as sexuality. In fact, you can't really think about sexuality without thinking about these other things and how sexuality is always racialized because um, at the end of the day, there were disproportionate impacts of HIV AIDS in the United States and globally that we have to understand through these logics. And in fact, you know, how many countries close down their borders to people with HIV? I mean, the United States, the biggest one, had a ban for 22 years. And who did that impact? Not everyone just couldn't come to the United States. Of course, it was racialized people um, primarily. And so that is, I think queer theory has a lot to say about that. Um, as well. It's not just, uh, we can't just think about that through the the lens of citizenship, for example. And Maya, your work also is sort of challenging this um, exceptionalizing of, of, of queer sexuality. And your work also is discussing straight sexuality as well in your book on Lebanon. Is that right? Yes. I think actually of my work in some ways as taking a queer approach to heterosexuality or, or kind of thinking about straightness uh, and uh, as an active uh, social field that is actively uh, constructed, regulated, and intervened into by, by state power, different arms of uh, state power. And I do that in part to... Uh, you know, and I think we are kind of, when it comes to queerness, uh, you know, this is something that queer scholarship really gives us, these kinds of tools to think about sexuality really uh, as a site for multiple different processes and uh, not as a singular site, like Karma was saying, but as a site that is hypermobile and uh, is constructed across multiple registers. And I'm trying to take those approaches to sexuality and think about uh, straightness and how heterosexuality, you could say heterosectarianism in some ways, is really kind of uh, one of the main areas of state interest, state regulation, and... um, 
sort of the active construction of political life and political identity. So to make this more concrete, because it might not be immediately apparent to uh, our listeners, I mean, it might be, uh, what sexuality has to do with uh, state power. So in Lebanon, women cannot pass on their nationality, right? And you take that as a, a key element of how sectarianism works in Lebanon, right? So maybe you can start from, from there. Uh, sure, I can give examples. <laughs> I think one of them is uh, citizenship law, uh, which, as you said, uh, is not only uh, excludes women, but also logically securitizes this decision over citizenship through a sectarian panic, what I would call a sectarian panic over demographics. So not only can we think about it as an intervention into women's sexuality or, or sort of a disciplinary technique uh, when it comes to women's sexuality, but it's also an example of uh, the disciplining of women's sexuality through the construction of like sectarian pluralism, sectarian uh, diversity, parity, because the main reasons given uh, for not allowing or not, you know, quote, whatever, giving women the right to pass citizenship is a sectarian reason, right? It's about sort of who these women are going to marry, who, th who their children will be, what the religious demographics of the country, this kind of like constant running, you know, I would call it like a sectarian demographic panic. And I call it sect sectarian because it's intimately linked to sexuality and the regulation of sexuality through examples like marriage, marriage law, but not only marriage law, also uh, through, you know, the census system itself is built on uh, sexual difference, and also, uh, you know, in this framework, queer sexualities themselves are constructed and regulated alongside, and they emerge from, I'm trying to argue, uh, a wider sort of regulation of sexuality that where heterosexuality and homosexuality, queer and straight sexualities are always operating uh, in relation to each other. And it's not that one is securitized and that one isn't. But actually, securitization is uh, one of the threads that you can pull through the regulation of sexuality itself. And what do we mean when we say securitization? Like regulation and control? Yeah, I think regulation and uh, control, uh, you know, in my work specifically, I work with law. I work a lot with law and bureaucracy. So I'm talking about specific kind of uh, security apparatus by the states. By that, I mean things like the police, incarceration, uh, interrogation, and everyday kind of legal encounters. How we can think basically uh, sexuality as a site that is hyper-securitized through different kinds of techniques like law, police, bureaucracy, panic, uh, sort of discursive forms of securitization or security. But then the flip side of that then is what does securitization do for the state or what does secure and what does securitization do for sexuality itself or to sexuality itself. And here, I mean, when we talk about securitization, we're talking about scale, right? So you can think about it all the way from what Karma was saying in terms of uh, securitizing, uh, you know, Muslim 
uh, pervert, uh, queer sexual, in the broadly configured queer sexualities through things like invasion, war, uh, uh, what's it called when you listen in on somebody, uh, surveillance, yeah, surveillance, <laughs> down to, you know, what happens in a detention cell or in an interrogation room, right? It's a scalar, it's something that operates on multiple scales. Well, I, I mean, I was just going to, you know, jump in on that and just think about, you know, you can uh, you can imagine securitization if you think about, like, in the United States context, what uh, trans women of color or black trans women kind of experience at this sort of level. So on the one hand, you have, like, governmental policy that uh, functions in such a way to make their lives completely insecure, Uh then you get down to workplace, say, for example, um, and the monitoring of trans women of color, what they wear, what they're able to do. Then you get down to the level of the street, right? And so how many trans women of color who are walking to get groceries or, you know, any number of ordinary activities are then imagined to be sex workers, right? And then whether they are or aren't sex workers, kind of the uh, imaginary of the sex worker, what the law says about the sex worker. So for me, when I try to explain this stuff to students, you know, I'll I'll often take a a figure and there's, you know, Sarah Ahmed teaches us the problems with figuring, but sometimes how a figure relates to each of these different kind of scales can help to see how securitization can work. Yeah, no, I I think that that's really helpful. Thank you, Karma. Um, yeah, we we are running out of time, actually. So we'll probably have to leave it there. But is there anything else that either of you wanted to add before we uh, close off? I don't think that I have anything to add. I'm just really glad to have had the conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for this invitation and for the year-long project. Thank you both uh, so much. Um, yeah, you've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International Podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I've been speaking with Karma Chavez and Maya McDashi as part of our Transnational Trends in Citizenship project. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.